Good morning. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We're going to finish up this chapter today, and it has been quite a trip through this chapter. Very challenging, very encouraging, and I hope today will uh, be the same for you. Um, it certainly has been for me. As I think about the ending of this chapter, I, I thought of a, a, just a statement about life, and I'm assuming that you'll agree with me. Life is hard, isn't it? And life is hard for everyone, not in the same way and not to the same degree necessarily, but nobody gets a pass. Now, sometimes we make life hard on ourselves, right? We make choices take paths, we go certain ways. Sometimes the world makes life hard for us. Either way, we all have different strategies for dealing with the difficulties of life, don't we? When the going gets tough, the world tells us the tough get going, right? Now again, lots of different strategies, but as I thought about today, I thought that phrase is something that a lot of us, uh, even believers, might take hold of, that when life gets hard, we toughen up. And that may work on the ball field or maybe in the boardroom, maybe on the battlefield, but that doesn't work for all of life. And here's why that doesn't work for all of life. Because the toughest people in the world still have a sin problem. And the toughest people in the world still die. So those two things, which are the things that make life hard, toughness cannot overcome them. There has to be something else. The Bible tells us that faith in a faithful God is the only reliable remedy for what makes life hard. The members of Hebrews 11, which we've been looking at now for some time, they're presented to us as models. As I studied this week and I thought about kind of all the different people we've looked at, I'm not sure many of them could be considered tough. There's a couple of them. All of them ultimately became desperately dependent upon their God. And that's what set them apart. And that's what allowed them to walk through life in a God-honoring way. Those people clung to their faith and acted upon the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? From Hebrews 11.1, 1, where we got the definition of faith. Now, before we look at this final list of Hall of Famers, I want to give you a list of five beliefs that I think represent the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And I am confident that our Hall of Famers had these things in mind as they did what they did. When the going gets tough, genuine biblical faith believes 
that the circumstances of life are allowed by God and employed by him for the good of his people. All of these are mentioned in your outline at the top of the page with biblical references. I'm not going to go to those. I'm going to encourage you to maybe spend some time this week giving some consideration to these. The second thing that biblical faith believes is that abiding in God's word is the surest way through life's difficulties. Not our best, most inspirational thoughts, not our grit, not our talent, not our intellect, but an absolute dependence upon God's word. Thirdly, genuine biblical faith believes that God is able to overcome any opposition to his redemptive purposes. God said all things are possible with him. That doesn't obligate him to always do what we want him to do. But we have to believe that he can. And that if he doesn't, he has good reason. That leads to the next belief, and that is where God does not deliver from suffering, he will sustain those who trust in him. He sustains us through his word, through his spirit, and through his people, and he is glad, he is glad to provide those things for us, especially when life is hard. And then lastly... When the going gets tough, genuine biblical faith believes that God will ultimately make all things new. And that matters when life is exploding around us. We have to believe that regardless of how good this day might go, there will be a day when all things are made new. Now, the going got tough for the community that first received this letter that we have been studying. And they were tempted, as we've learned, to shrink back from the faith that they had placed in Christ. And they were returning to an Old Testament form of faith under the umbrella of Judaism. And that faith and the covenant that it was based upon... That was rendered fulfilled and obsolete by the person of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I want to give you a picture of what this looks like because th this is why this is so urgent for the writer of Hebrews. Now, after creation, we know in Genesis 3, there was a fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That introduced sin and death to everyone's experience. Life became hard. And all of those people had to look forward to God doing something about all that makes life hard. He promised in cryptic ways initially and in fuller ways over time, a Messiah who would come and Make right everything that was made wrong. And so all of those people are looking forward to a Messiah. Then Jesus comes and says, I'm him. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He dies in the midst of those claims and then rises again to verify the fact that he was God in the flesh and he did what was necessary to take care of our sin and death problem. That means he fulfilled the old covenant, ushered in a new covenant, and that new covenant is based upon God's wrath being satisfied in Christ. That means everyone who trusts in the person of Jesus is no longer looking forward to a faceless Messiah, but looking back to a flesh and blood man who died on their behalf and who will come again. So they're looking back to a risen Savior and forward to a returning Lord. So to shrink back, to return to Judaism, is to go back to the Old Covenant, which is operating with the belief that he hasn't come yet. So it's, it's equal to denying that Jesus ever came. Do you understand how tragic that is for a New Testament believer? That's why the writer of Hebrews is going after this so passionately. The writer of Hebrews was calling them and us to hold fast. You see that phrase five times in the book. And they're to hold fast despite the world's opposition. Regardless of how hard it gets, he's saying stand firm. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He demonstrated that faithfulness in the arrival of Christ and all that he did. That is our reason for believing that he will return in the future and make all things new. Then in Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, he, he mentions imitators. We, we should be imitators of those who through faith and patient, patience inherit the promises. I'm, I'm sure that the writer had all of these people that we've been looking at in Hebrews 11 in mind. These are the people that we're supposed to imitate. I do think it's interesting that they're Old Testament saints. They're looking forward to a Messiah who has no face. And yet they're believing in him. They're trusting him for everything. When things get horrific... And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's a great model for you. And you happen to know his name. There are two categories of people. I, I think this applies to all of Hebrews 11, but certainly in these last uh, several verses. Two categories. All of these folks are thrown into various forms of affliction or hardship. Both exercise their faith, but they have different outcomes. Two in particular. Some of them escape their afflictions, and the others do not. At least they're immediate ones. All of them are affirmed for their faith, and they are assured of an inheritance promised in the next life with 
the Lord. So we're going to look at these two groups of people. The first, those who express their faith and escape affliction, and then those who express their faith and endure affliction. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. You can read a lot more of the background of this in Exodus 14. Uh, It is helpful just to notice that up to this point, the writer has been highlighting individuals, and now he's talking about a community, a group of people who all seem to be exercising their faith together, not just as individuals. Uh, I should say, and I think Jeff and I have been saying this, that nobody does this perfectly, and certainly Israel doesn't. So the context here is Israel leaves Egypt, having been set free, and they do it, the text says in Exodus 14, defiantly. It's kind of like they're beating their chest on their way out of town. They've seen their God deliver them in a profound way. And so probably at that point, they're like, man, we're ready to go. Show us to the promised land. And they're trucking right along. And then they come to the Red Sea. And they happen to look backward to see Egypt's army coming after them. And they're cornered. And guess what? They're not not, uh, defiant anymore. They're terrified. Impossible circumstances. They're between a rock and a hard place. And they're given an option that seems like a very perilous pathway. We love the story of the parting of the Red Sea, right? I just want you to put yourself in their shoes. And you've got a massive army coming after you and you're told to walk through the water. And Moses, he's just going to put up his staff, and it's just going to part. That's okay until you actually walk into the bed of the ocean. And, and we're told the, wall, the water is like walls on both sides. I want you to see yourself in the middle. And you're looking at water. Who knows how high? Held back only by the wind of the Lord. I'm, I'm still not sure you wouldn't be terrified. And yet they kept walking. They stepped into the Red Sea by faith. Before they did that, listen to what Moses said to these people in Exodus 14. Fear not, stand firm, sound familiar? And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be tough as nails. No, he says, you have only to be silent. Be still and know that I am God. 
I'll fight for you. I'll be your deliverer. Place your faith in me. They were afraid, but their faith displaced their fear, and they took a walk in a perilous place, but they trusted God, and they were delivered. Facing Egypt's army and walking through a large, miraculously parted body of water creates a a double bind if you please. It's two hard things. And what you have to decide is which hard thing is the right thing. And isn't that the life of faith? Aren't we always walking through facing a lot of hard things, a lot of hard options, some of which are great for us and some of which are not? And don't we want to find those things that are best for us and how else to find them than to ask the Lord to point it out. Genuine faith believes that abiding in God's word is the surest way through the difficulties of life. That is how we find the right thing in the midst of hard things. Forty years later, we get to verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I should mention that the writer assumes a whole lot of knowledge of the Old Testament here. I'm not going to provide that for you, um, but I want to encourage you to spend some time in your Old Testament so that you can hear these phrases and these names and these places, and it stirs up in you a narrative about the activity of God that fuels your faith. We're told to look back and see how these people lived and be inspired by that. And you can't be inspired if you don't know what happened. I'll tell you some little bits here and there, but this would be great uh, food for thought in the days ahead. Now, Israel, after that dramatic deliverance across the Red Sea, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Why did they do that? Because they didn't exercise their faith to enter the promised land when the Lord put it right before them. They were afraid of all of the threats that had been identified in the land that God had promised them. So rather than trust God with those threats in light of him just delivering them, they chose a safer path. And they spent 40 years wandering as a result. A generation died. And now a new generation is standing at the promised land, and the Lord takes them. I I do think it's interesting. He takes them to the most heavily fortified city in the region and says, that's where you're going to start to take the land. 
You can read about this in Joshua 6. But God commands the people of Israel, I mean, they're going into battle, right? He, he instructs them to come to this heavily fortified city and to walk around it with the ark, blowing trumpets, once a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, they're, they're to do the same thing seven times. And after they complete the seventh time around the city, they blow their trumpets and they all shout. And guess what's going to happen? The walls are just going to fall down. Can you imagine how foolish that must have seemed? Can, can you even conceive of a military strategy that would involve blowing trumpets. And yet that's exactly what God told them to do. And so they did it. And the walls fell. Just as God had said. What if, what if they had done that? 40 years earlier. God is sovereign, but that does not diminish our responsibility and the consequences of our choices to act in faith when God tells us what to do. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they trust God with this strategy. Then this gal is mentioned in here. This is in Joshua 2. Her name is Rahab, and she's a prostitute. I love the people that God chooses to use, just so that all of us don't think too highly of ourselves. He sends spies in to Jericho. They lodge at the house of a prostitute. I'll let you do a little research on why that might have been a strategic move. And while there, the king of Jericho gets wind of their presence and he goes to question her. She hides the spies and sends the king and his men off in another direction. Because of that, she and her household were saved. She's a Gentile, she's a prostitute. And she lives in a land that belongs to Israel. And yet the Lord delivers her. Simply because in the place of a rock and a hard place kind of thing, she chooses to trust in the God of Israel. And not the God of her people. Israel and Rahab's acts of faith were instrumental in their escape from the threats they faced. Both were willing to risk greatly as an expression of faith in God's provision. That doesn't obligate God to deliver in this life. But... It, it seems reasonable 
because the consequences, the outcome is tied to their faith that it matters. It really matters what we decide to do and not do. And whether what we decide to do or not do is an expression of our trust in God. Trusting God is risky, but risk is right for the kingdom of God. And if you are going to live a life by faith, then you better get comfortable with a life of risk. That's just the way it works in a broken, sin-wrecked world. And God says, I will meet you right in that place of risk, and I will do what only I can do. The writer of Hebrews continues in verse 32. Sounds like a, a preacher. What more shall I say? As if I'm done, but I'm not. <laughs> Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. There's a story here in every single detail. And the thing that struck me about this list, not only the, those who are named, but the circumstances which, again, should trigger like, oh, that probably is referring to this other character that isn't named. But... What's interesting here is this list of people, in my mind, speaks to the brokenness of those who trusted God. There's very little here spectacular. Samuel is probably top of the pile. David was listed as a man after God's own heart, but we know David's story, right? Not pretty. And yet he's listed as a faith hall of famer. I'll just mention a couple of the names in particular. Gideon, this is in Judges 6 through 8. The first of these are, are listed in Judges. He was weak and timid. And yet he's listed as a man of great faith. Somehow he was able to dependently walk through his weakness and his timidity to do what God told him to do. His faith overcame his fear. Barak in Judges 4, I would call him superstitious and insubordinate. He was told by Deborah to uh, go into battle, and he said, I'm not going unless you're going with me. Which is a little strange for a general to say, but he did. And he went, and he won. Samson, <clears throat> worldly and arrogant. Why is he on this list? 
the most tragic and beautiful thing about Samson's story is that he did everything that a tough guy could do, but only in the power of God. And when he lost the power of God, he lost his eyes and went into chains. And then, this is the beautiful part, in that pathetic, desperate place, where did he turn? Back to his God. Sometimes, that's where we get. (laughs) Rock bottom, in a ditch, on our face. Who do you cry out to in that place? Samson would say, there's only one place. Cry out to God. And the Lord was glad, glad to fill him again. That is the heart of our God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jephthah. A rough character, brash and brutal. Rejected by his people, then called back when they went into war. Again, I'll let you read the details, but he made a foolish vow that cost him dearly. And I suppose what we should take away from him is a willingness to trust God in all of the circumstances of life, even some of the most difficult and desperate. God used him and all of these people, and as I said earlier, they represent broken yet hopeful people who trusted God to be God. That is our model. That is our example to follow Group two, the first group escaped their affliction. These did not. Look at verse 35b. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I am certain that every one of these people prayed for deliverance. And God's answer to them in the moment was no. But I have to believe, and I think that they believed, that God would meet them in that place of great loss and carry them through that to a place of eternal deliverance. And that's what they were counting on. Their faith wasn't contingent upon God making their life here better. Their faith was contingent upon God securing them in his presence 
for all of eternity. John Piper says this, God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. They endured, they persevered, they stood firm despite the temptation to recant. And they were given that opportunity. Their enemies said, hey, just say the word. Just deny your faith and we'll set you free. That kind of freedom comes with strings attached. And those strings don't go upward. Have you ever wondered what you would do in that kind of situation? I mean, not where it's just sort of difficulty, but I mean your life is on the line. And wouldn't all of us want to get in that place and say, no, I'm standing firm. I'm holding fast. I can trust my God. You can take my life, but that's all you can take. How do you get to that place? What if your life depended upon running an ultra marathon, but you never run a day in your life? How well do you think that would go for you? So I think, you know, what if... We were in this place where our life is on the line and our faith is all we've got, but we've never really exercised it in any form or fashion. How's that going to go for us? Faith is, I know you've heard this illustration, faith is a muscle. It must be exercised and it can grow. It can become stronger, but only through use. And if you and I don't exercise our faith in the small things, how can we possibly believe that we will be able to call upon that faith when something as significant as our life is on the line? Every month we do a thing. We call it first fruits where we talk about giving. And I am going to need you to forget that I am your pastor. I need you to hear this just as a word of encouragement and exhortation. We don't talk about giving because we need your money. Ministry takes money. We all understand that, right? The reason I or our leaders would ever ask you for a dime is because it is directly related to your life of faith. And if you can't exercise your faith by giving money, which is, I mean, really, it's just money. If you can't exercise your faith in that, how can you exercise your faith when life really gets hard. Kimberly and I, when we married, 
we just decided, by faith, we're going to give 10% off the top, no questions asked. Whether we are in lean times or times of prosperity. And it was hard. But after 30 years, we have seen God go so far above and beyond in providing for us. Here's what Jesus said about giving. Luke 12, 15, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do we believe that? Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The world says that's all crazy town. But God says different. And as a people of faith, friends of mine called this the training wheels of faith. If you and I can get in the habit of trusting God by giving 10% of all that God has entrusted to us, imagine what might happen when everything really is on the line. You'll be ready. These people who lost everything, the writer of Hebrews says, the world was not worthy of them. What's very interesting is these people were a gift to the world. This beautiful little picture of what it meant to be in relationship with a good God. They were light in the darkness, just like you. And as they were taking their last breath, perhaps in the most horrific of circumstances, they showed the world what it was like to trust in God, not for better circumstances here, but an eternity with God there. They believed that God would ultimately make all things new. Please, please, please read Revelation 21, 1 through 5 this week. That's God's promise. And listen, it's either true or it's not. It's not a Hallmark card. That brings us to... uh, The end of chapter 11, last two verses. The best is yet to come. I just think we got to say that to ourselves every day, right? You wake up in the morning, the best is yet to come. It's not here, it's later. Get glimpses. Here's the reality of those Old Testament saints, verse 39. All these, though commended, that word is really like a testimony. God testified to the faithfulness of these people. They were commended through their faith. Did not receive what was promised, in parentheses, in this life. Since God had provided something better for us. 
parentheses, and them. And guess what it was? That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, they were saved. They were sanctified, justified, glorified, all of that stuff. At the end of life, they went into God's presence. But God set his redemptive plan up in such a way that they could not be said to be made perfect or complete without you, without me. We throw this phrase around, together is, and that's going to be true for all of eternity by God's design. We were meant to be people of faith who will spend eternity with our faithful God together. That has always been God's plan, his design. The best is yet to come. So, how is your faith holding up in the hard places of life? What biblical beliefs do you need to cultivate so that you can respond well when the pain arrives? What faith-stretching habits could you adopt to deepen your faith in God? I invite you to pray for just a few moments. Begin asking God to show you how you can exercise your faith in new and fresh ways and grow to trust Him more. Jesus, uh, never, and uh, you know this, never uh, greater truth been stated than life is hard. And Lord, I pray for us as a body, as individual believers, and as a community of faith, and for even believers nationally and worldwide, that Lord, if you don't allow us to escape the suffering, I pray you would allow us to endure it. And throughout our life, uh, we're going to escape some and en endure others, and that's as normal as blinking. Help us to realize that. 
bring us to places of desperation, which causes growth and trust in you as we either escape or endure. And what gives us the fuel to do that, Lord, is that you would, by your grace and your spirit and your power, let us see the end, that the best is indeed yet to come. And there are sweet rewards with you. Welcome home, faithful servant. Lord, I also pray that you would encourage us this morning that, man, there's not a one of us in here who hadn't made a mess of times of our walks with you, and yet you, as Monty said, are long-suffering and patient and kind, and you woo us back to yourself and use us still. The Bible's slam full of those same people like us. Give us courage and encouragement this morning, both. And we love you, and everyone said, Amen.